2: I'm Erica Wides, host of Let's Get Real, the cooking show about finding, preparing, and eating food. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more.
3: We talk about food. We talk about music. With musical dudes. Finger on the pulse. Snacky tune.
4: Welcome to Snacky Tunes. I'm one half your host, Greg Bresnitz. We have Darren I'm calling in from L.A. Welcome, Darren.
5: Hello. Welcome from the uh, other
4: side of the country. That was just Kay uh, with her song Honey off of the EP of the same name who will be performing live in studio later today. Hello, Kay.
6: Hey,
4: how's it going? Uh, good. Um, first up, we have Yael Pete. Welcome to Snacky Tunes. Hi. Uh, Yael is the chef at Carso. Uh, with a great pedigree, but we just want to get one thing out of the way. You don't make sushi. I don't. We just want to clear for any people who were curious or wanted to ask that question, here and now, just stated Doesn't it be brought up again? You don't make sushi. Not currently. Uh, so, one of the things that is really great is that your current cuisine was foreshadowed in your youth from a really strong tradition of uh, Christmas meals, uh, Peter Luger's. Uh, what was it like, kind of growing up and going to steak houses, and what was kind of the scene around that uh, from your younger days?
2: When I was really young, I don't think I understood how special it was. Like looking back on it, I'm like, oh man, I'm nine and I get to eat a hundred dollar steak.
4: Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm 34, and if I eat a hundred dollar steak, I'd be pumped.
2: Yeah, of yeah. course. But like nine year old me didn't yet yeah, didn't know.
4: Yeah. Um, and what was, you know, what type of memories are, you know, people cook from those memories? How does that kind of come into your current cuisine?
2: Well, when my mom told me that my steak tasted like a Peter Luter steak, I wanted to cry, basically. Because that's, that's a high compliment. But it's also my mom. Uh,
4: so from... Before we get to your current gig, uh, let's kind of go back a little bit. Um, You were an art school student?
2: Yes. (laughs) Uh,
4: What was your first kind of passion uh, in the creative world?
2: Um, Cartoons. Cartoons and illustration. Um, I I just grew up thinking my whole life I was going to draw, and then I got to college, and I'm like, I don't really know how this becomes a job. (laughs) Like, making Uh. cartoons on paper becomes a job.
4: I mean, there's examples out there. Uh, so, when did the cartooning? Do you still cartoon?
2: Uh, when can you I illustrate? can. When I can. I try my best. Um, but I realized, so, uh, well.
5: So you had this creative bug, this desire to create, and did you see a? When did you see a path to a career in cooking versus cartooning?
2: Well, I guess cooking was something I always needed to do because my mom was a single mom, um, so I felt really, really comfortable with it, and that was the thing that I could see as a career it's like drawing oh I don't want to sit at a desk for eight hours a day in a room and it's cooking it's oh I'm on my feet and I I just really like the physical activity of it a lot
5: and you and you grew up in New Jersey correct yes um when did what was your first cooking job when did you get out of the the home kitchen and into your first kitchen
2: um I went to culinary school when I was 19 so I dropped out of art school um and then I ran away to France, <laughs> where I cooked for an American family, which was really, really great. I just wanted to see a completely different culture of food. And then when I came home, I started working for Frankie's as a pasta apprentice.
4: Oh, for, just to go back to the private chef, did you have to cook American food in France, or did they teach you the ways of the markets and the, the local... Food that was there. She
2: was actually pregnant, and she was a writer, so I was just making her comfortable stuff, um, and she loved my chicken soup. And she's like, "Why is your chicken soup so so good?" I was like, "Oh, you know, because I get the really good halal chickens from the market, and mm-hmm. I put the head and the feet in it." And she's like, "I wish I hadn't," because <laughs>
4: yeah.
2: you know, I take them out, but like for the stock flavor, that's got right. all the good stuff.
4: She's like, "Better." She's like, "I wish I had known." Please keep, please keep business as usual.
2: Yeah. <laughs>
5: Can you describe what it felt like to be young and in Paris and going to the markets and and what was that like to to walk around like hollowed culinary ground
2: um it was it was better than even like dining out in France, and it was awesome because it was that time like right before. Everyone got smartphones, so I didn't, like, have a phone. I was just out there. I I mean, I didn't even have a cell phone, because I had no friends in France. (laughs) So I just get up and just wander around the city all alone, and uh, that didn't really freak me out at all, and just all the the produce is so much better. Sorry, New York, but... It was so, so much better. I don't
4: think any... Has anyone made the claim that New York produce is better than... No. For, I, <laughs> no. I, I think that doesn't need to be
2: apologized
4: for. I just think
5: it's Maybe a Maybe San Francisco versus Paris, but I don't think New York has ever put, the, put their reputation for that That's true. Uh, in the ring.
2: And the markets were just everywhere. Every single block was a market. So uh, it's not like you had to like go to the Union Square market. They were just... Omnipresent.
4: Just turn the corner. So once you got to the Frank's kitchen, mm-hmm. what were some of the big takeaways from making being a pasta apprentice? Well,
2: I was telling you that pasta is like one of my favorite foods and, and noodles in general. Um, so that's where I really, really got my footing. Um, I don't know if I can mention names. I mean, I guess why not? Yeah, but yeah, I, um, shout out. <laughs> my friend Stephen Gonzalez uh, taught me so much, and he was so stern and got me into, like, a really robotic pasta method. But now he makes um, foglini pasta, which I think he's selling at Whole Foods. So what's like,
4: what's Foglini pasta? It's,
2: like, a dried pasta company. Hmm. Um, but that's, like, that's a good place for a cook to end up, to, like, start on the line making $9 an hour and then to have, like, your own product and company that you believe in. Like, that's pretty much as good as it gets. And then, f-
4: and then from there, or when do you – what is the acknowledgement of uh, – being able to graduate from the apprentice program.
2: <laughs> well, um, it was really just that I wanted to work on the hot line, which means you're making food to order at dinner. Whereas I was working in the morning prepping. So I wanted to get into that next level. And that's what I, m- why I moved on from there.
4: What was your uh, like personal best of amount of pasta made in a morning?
2: Oh, God. Just like t- disgusting amounts. And I was making a lot of different things. I was doing ravioli and gnocchi. And So it's a lot of different methods. I mean, but I would have, I don't know, f- you know, 100 pounds of pasta in a day. Like my body weight in pasta.
4: And That's how much of that bread. would like kind of sneak into your bag and you <laughs> would take? <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, Frankie's, um, Frankie's doesn't freeze or dry their pasta. So none. It's like it goes bad right away, which I think is kind of a shame. So I actually like hand dry my pasta now. So it has a better shelf life.
4: Hmm. And then from there you went to Montmartre. So how long were you there for?
2: Um, I wasn't there long because I got on board to be with this chef, uh, Tin Ho. So when he left, um, I left. And that was weird because I was trying to get into Manhattan dining. And then just suddenly it's like, oh, we're going to be closed for a week and rebrand.
4: So I was oh, very I was
2: scared. and uh, But then I ended up at Prune, which is perfect.
4: Which is amazing. Yeah. And kind of the best place where you can learn. I feel like Prune, had they opened in you know 2013, would have just yeah you know, not that they're not a legend in their own right it would have just been something else but they somehow both graciously missed and were not part of whatever was going on the last few years
2: oh yeah they're just old <laughs>
4: yeah. i mean old defined uh, and what- and so what was it like
5: to work in such a legendary place like prune i mean it was so like famous and well known and such like in many ways a, a world class dining and yet a, a neighborhood restaurant at the same time but did you find that uh, approach something that would influence your cooking later on
2: um very much so i mean i think prune is my biggest influence but it's also small and when a restaurant is that small your team is small so you know each other really well and mm-hmm. you really just have to work super super hard and as my husband who's also in the industry says you'd like drink the kool-aid <laughs> so we, it's like a it was a girls club and it was a little cultish and it was all like who could get there first and, and do their best um but we had a really, really good time, and uh, and got really intimate with the food. It was great.
4: And then from there, moving to uh, Shuko, I mean, when did the Japanese influence begin to creep into your uh, miso
2: <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, I guess you could say Shuko and Pruner uh, as different as they get. Yeah, I think, but they're <laughs> not. They're not in a way. Um, I've always loved Japanese food and Japanese culture since I was, like, a little kid. And most of the people I know who aren't Japanese who are making Japanese food all have similar stories about being obsessed with the cuisine and the culture. We're all just, like, a bunch of nerds. And we all hang out. Like, uh, my my best friend uh, works at a sushi place um, in the Upper East Side, and she's a sushi chef. She's amazing, this girl Una. And her and me... And John Daly and Dave Burana, we all like, go out, and then we get more Japanese food. And then talk about <laughs> Japanese food. We're just we're nerds. Um,
4: what is your favorite? Give us your second best kept secret. So the first one remains okay. yours. Um, but second best kept secret for Japanese
2: thought. Ichiban Te on 14th Street is open till 4 a.m., so it's really good mm-hmm. for cooks to uh, go after work.
4: And what's your favorite thing on the menu?
2: Oh my god!
4: Um, <laughs> okay, top three. We won't make you choose. One. Yeah, yeah, because
2: you have to get you have to get a couple of things. Sure. Um, taco wasa, which is like raw octopus swimming in wasabi. It's really gooey. And uh, weird. That sounds
4: amazing. Maybe wow. maybe a
2: more beginner thing. Their karage, uh, like fried chicken, is super super for, juicy. Forget
4: beginners. We're <laughs> like this is snacky tunes. We go for like the raw weird stuff.
2: And yeah. Well, also over the summer they have like a really really good cold noodle bowl. Mm. So.
4: Ooh. Uh, that sounds delicious so we're going to take a quick musical break uh, and then we're going to come back and talk about restaurants and chiropractic uh, offices <laughs> uh, and uh, the menu of and kind of some knife sharpening skills cool uh, this is a track from one of our all time favorite bands Au Simone from the first Snacky Tunes comp and we'll be right back <laughs> No. Welcome back to Snacky Tunes. So before we get to uh, Karsu, let's talk a little bit about Shuko because I think there's something really significant about your time there and and why it was such a big deal that you were working at that restaurant.
2: Uh, Yeah, so I guess I've been reading a lot about myself, which is really weird. It's like what people think about you. You're like, oh, okay. Um, But they're saying like the girl disrupting a sushi scene and it, it wasn't like that at all. I was just really happy that they didn't, Take it into consideration that I was a girl. Um, it's really rare, so that was like kind of how Shuko became such a lucky opportunity. and I've known really, really talented female chefs who couldn't get into Japanese food um, because of it, to, just to be frank, um, and I think that's a real shame. So Shuko gave that to me uh, without ever questioning it. That's very cool.
4: And Do you think that's just a sign of the Times?
2: Uh, yeah. because N- Not to
4: knock your is. skills or anything. It
2: is. Um, and, you know, the chefs at Shuko, it's not a secret that they're not uh, Japanese. Their sensei was Japanese, but the two chefs right. are Korean and Chinese, and that doesn't make them any less of chefs. So naturally, it's like the next person they take on won't even be a guy at all.
5: So- I mean, it's, it's interesting when you look at Japanese culture, and I think back to something like... Iron Chef when you had these Japanese guys cooking French food, Italian food, things like that. And no one would ever question their background. They were just doing it the best version, especially even today when you go to Japan and you see these types of food that's like this is the best type of this cuisine, even though it's not from Japan. And I wonder why the the in America is not yet considered just standard bear when some people are like, We're not from that culture but we're gonna cook the best food possible from a culture we love.
2: I mean I think when in doubt, especially if you're cooking food that's not from your own culture, it's just to, like, to be respectful and uh, and do a lot of research and, you know, embrace criticism. And don't try to tell anyone to do something a, a certain way if it's not yours and you don't know it. Uh, and that's it. You know, that's the best you can do.
4: And what, was Shuko what got you into knife sharpening?
2: Um I had been knife sharpening since college because I used to work with this woman, Marjorie, who's still in the Chelsea Market on Wednesdays and Saturdays, and she's awesome because
5: she's awesome. Uh, she's
2: awesome. I got made fun of at yeah. Walmart because my knives were dull. Um, I couldn't <laughs> well, I couldn't cut carpaccio, and they're like, "Well, why?" Not? And I said, "Oh, well, my <laughs> knives aren't very sharp." And they're like, "Why? <laughs> How could you say something like that? You can't. Like, you should be ashamed." So I went to um, help her out a bunch, and then yeah, Shuko definitely changed the game because. Um, I used to say at Shuko, um, sharpening your knives is like brushing your teeth. If you don't do it every day, everyone's going to notice. <laughs> I'll cut something and they're like, I can tell you didn't sharpen your knife today. This looks terrible.
4: And does the the act of sharpening your own knives is that you're kind of res, like, just kind of carve out a space for your own mental reset, getting into the day of the routine?
2: Um, it's, it's a pain. It requires an amount of patience that most people uh, don't have. So I'd say like cue up like a playlist like I have a nice sharpening playlist so I know I have to keep going until it's over otherwise I'd stop like every minute
5: what's Uh, on the playlist what's on that playlist
2: Um, it depends I have one called Girls Just Wanna Have Fun I also have a follow up playlist called Boys Just Wanna Have Fun Um, it's just anything like it has to be like a 10 minute playlist that you can rock out to and then you know you're done it's mostly about like making sure you do it for that amount of time
4: Mm. Uh, got it so your new spot, uh, what's really great about it is, first off, the location. So how was this place found, and, and how do you get, actually get to it?
2: Um, well, I knew the Walters guys for a long time, so they reached out to me, not knowing a lot about like, the Japanese cooking community. Um, and they were offered this space by their landlord, uh, because it was a chiropractor's office, yes. Um, and it was accessed through the residence, through the apartment building. Which, if you've been to Carson, you know you can't do that anymore to disturb the neighbors. Right. Um, so they got a really good deal on it, and the landlord liked them. Uh, so we're, we're not a speakeasy per se, but we ended up with this kind of like Captain's Quarter's restaurant because they adopted it, and uh, they were going to make Walters bigger, but they saw it as a great opportunity to have like kind of a tucked away, sexy little bar.
4: I feel like that's a New York fantasy. It's like yeah. go behind this secret door and here's this hidden beautiful restaurant and it just if you were to take someone there and they didn't know about it, they would before anything even happened, they would just know they were for something special.
2: I personally think we should also bring back the chiropractor though.
4: But that's just, oh for sh- that's just for the chef. Not After a long not meal, office, getting like your shoulders just, rubbed yeah. for five to ten minutes.
2: It's on the menu. It's like, get your back cracked. Oh, is that dessert oh or God. is that
4: part so of the, just part of the meal?
2: Oh, no, that's dessert. <laughs>
4: so the, since we've already established you do not make sushi,
2: mm-hmm.
4: um, your food really is interesting uh, because it is your own personal take on an izakaya. And just looking at the menu, it, it's not something... It's yours. It's very much your own interpretation from essentially, like you said, Peter Luger steaks are not something you would think that you would find at a Japanese restaurant. Uh, where else have you pulled inspiration from and how do you make the menu Japanese but equally pulled from your own experience?
2: Uh, well, you guys were talking about Iron Chef and how they would cook <coughs> French and Italian and so deftly. Um, this is a huge kind of 20th century phenomenon because Japan was a closed off country for a long time. Um, and then there was this like rush and embrace of Western food, um, and it's called yoshoku. So, washoku are the fundamentals of Japanese cooking, and yoshoku just literally means like Western cooking. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I look at that a lot. Like, when we nerd out and go to the izakaya, they have mentaiko spaghetti. So, I'm not really like rewriting the whole concept. It's just, oh, well, what if we made it with handmade pasta? instead of box spaghetti and you get this ridiculously creamy result Um, also also prune (laughs) as
5: you as you've created this menu and to go back what you said before about not having people tell you to do it one way when you're cooking quote unquote another culture's cuisine have you sort of established with the dishes like the duck chicken wings and things like that like it's it's going to be inspired, but we're not going to go traditional, and it's just going to be our own thing.
2: I would say I try to lean traditional, but I don't really have the right to say authentic. So I've got categories that I want you to see in traditional Japanese cuisine, like a karaage, your fried dish, a robata, your grilled dish, uh, sashimi, and sunomono, your vinegared vegetables. So I'm looking at pretty um, traditional cuisine. Uh, I just, like I said, I don't want to use the A word. <laughs> um but otherwise it's you know you're going to kind of see these things in a lot of Japanese places but I'm really really building them from the ground up like I make my chicken meatballs by hand where you you can just get them frozen it's pretty easy but Karsu would yeah. be fun if it wasn't for that it's like that's what I get to do there.
4: And it's just you and hey. one other person.
2: Literally. Uh her name is Elena. She's there right now hey, killing Alina. it. She's awesome. We're trying to make a, a sake-based bread right now. She's texting me about flour. and talking about Chef's Table, where uh, I don't know if you've seen it.
4: Yeah, i spent the whole... Tear-inducing.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's beautiful. But all the chefs are like, oh, you know, it's stale. If you write down the recipe, like, we're going to do it fresh today. I'm like, that never works for me. <laughs> we mess something up big time, and we're like, okay, well, we're not going to run it today. But
4: <laughs> I think that those are... I, watching Chef's Tables and kind of from you know, doing Snacky Tunes, I think everyone... Has their own method of doing it. I mean, there's the people that profess one way, but I think whatever works best to also provide the best level of service and also not make you want to pull your hair out. <laughs> they're that's also prob- they're
2: yeah. the best chefs in the world. Yeah, they, I mean that's like that, yeah, are. that's
4: like A plus plus. Call
2: me in 20 years, I'll be worth talking. Oh, to Oh, that be, be like,
4: <laughs> uh, hey, follow up interview. Are you writing anything down? Uh, still writing stuff down. Okay, cool. Yeah. <laughs> no. uh,
5: now, uh, in addition to the food at uh, the restaurant, the drinks are also uh, like amazing riff on traditional drinks and things like that. You're working with, uh, a great guy who is over at, um, Newsy bar.
2: Yeah. Thomas. Wah. You know, it's, it's another place. Uh, I'm, I gravitate towards small spots. So we all are very, very intimate with each other. Um, and we have meetings before service. Uh, I mean, I feel like obviously you kind of have to do that. And, uh, you know, we taste what each other has made, and we're very honest and very embracing and I love working with him
4: And how did now. you finally arrive at the concept of Kyoto casual? where did you know how did you pick of all the regions of Japan landing there?
2: um I mean, I think Kyoto is kind of known as the emblem of cuisine in Japan. Um, they have a really, really old cuisine. And you're talking about Kyoto dining rooms being set up for kaiseki meals 700 years ago. Very, very old food. And coming out of Shuko, I was coming off of my kaiseki high. And I would love to do that at Karasu, but we don't have the space, literally. And, um, And I like letting people come in and have one or two dishes. I don't want to force them into spending hundreds of dollars. So that's, you know, I was still living in my... Kyoto mine when I started there like that's the that's like the Paris where you go to the markets and you see like all the gnarled beautiful red carrots and the you know $80 watermelons just like very very cared for uh cuisine and produce I
5: and uh I guess with all the new uh found success and your heritage uh, the the restaurant heritage uh you also were uh nominated and won for in fact 30 30 Uh, which is an awesome honor. And I wonder if, going back to what you said about reading about yourself and those type of press and things like that, does it force you to change about the way that you're thinking, how you're cooking, or just stay the path um, that that has sort of gotten you here?
2: Well, um, especially with Japanese cuisine and really what I believe in food, which is it should change because real food changes. It has seasons. Um, I feel always forced to change, and that's why, you know, Alina and I are doing the recipes and failing because every once in a while we do get something really, really good. And, uh, you know, I've got tomatoes and eggplants on the menu right now, and they have to come off at the end of the month or I'm going to have very bad tomatoes and eggplants. So, yeah, there there's a lot of, there's a lot of pressure. Uh, keep the menu small is <laughs> the yeah. way to win.
5: Uh, but, my- you know, I'd rather go to a restaurant that has 10 or 12 of the best things, and I found that when eating in Japan that, you know, restaurants sometimes only had two or three dishes or versions of the same dish, and they just kept refining and refining and refining, and that's, that was the best, and that the bad restaurants were the ones that had 30 or 40 dishes
4: on there. Uh, last question. What makes a good matzo ball?
2: Oh. <laughs> um, in my opinion, well, schmaltz. Like, so, so important. Uh, either chicken fat or duck fat, because they won't say that on the Manischewitz box, but, like, <laughs> Do, like, half um, canola oil and animal fat. Very important.
4: Okay. Well, thanks for joining us. Um, where can people find you? How can they come eat at the restaurant reservations? What is required?
2: Um, we have Resi. We're very open. And we have a super friendly uh, manager, Courtney, who will pick up the phone for you anytime. Uh, info at KarasuBK, Yael at KarasuBK, KarasuBK Instagram. Uh, we're all there.
4: It's all there. Uh, well, thanks for joining us. Uh, up next, we have Kay live uh, in studio for Snacky Tunes. Kay also moonlights as a band that's been on before called San for Men. So we're going to play a track from their previous Snacky Tunes performance called Methuselah. And I'll be right back with Kay.
1: Send a message to you when you're a lover. I'm a passenger I go, I go
4: Welcome back to Snacky Tunes. We have Kay in studio. Thanks for joining.
6: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
4: Yeah. So I know the tr- opening track we played was very pop '90s influenced. However, I also know that you were in the indie folk scene at University of Michigan.
6: That's right. You did your homework.
4: So I want to <laughs> know uh, what that scene is like and uh, what type of music you were putting out there. And what was the focus of the songs you were writing oh, at my that gosh. time?
6: You don't want to know. Because I do want to know. <laughs> um, yeah, I got my start uh, playing at University of Michigan on, in sort of like the open mic circle. They had open mics at in basements of, of various like student organization halls, and yeah, I just got involved with some really talented and passionate musicians, and really encouraged me to keep writing and keep pursuing my own thing. And um, yeah, at the, at the time, it was just it was poppin'. There was a there's a band called Lightning Love. Chris Bathgate, who still is really active and doing great stuff. Um, yeah, um, I'm trying to think of somebody else. The Electric Six, like, lots of, lots of bands that are Detroit-based. Alex Winston, she's based in Brooklyn now, also was a, is a Michigan native. Yeah, and it was just ripe for, for lots, of, um, lots of friendships to be made and lots of inspiration. So,
4: so what brought you to New York?
6: I caravanned out to New York after I graduated from University of Michigan with a bunch of other musician friends of mine.
4: Like a literal caravan.
6: It was a literal caravan. It was it was a U-Haul caravan. Okay. So we graduated, and then we all we put a, put a bunch of stuff in a U-Haul, got our practice space before getting our apartments.
4: I mean, classic. Yes. Classic. Did you sleep in the Did you sleep in the practice space?
6: Oh, of course. Yeah. There were many. There were many nights with long with late rehearsals where we were forced to sleep on a disgusting old couch, but we made it work. And now, unfortunately, it turned it got. Uh, we got evicted because it it is now a nail salon. Oh,
4: sadly. of course. I, actually, I don't know if I would agree. Of course, I would. If you'd said condos, of course. But the yeah, classic yeah. turned into nail salon. I don't know if I would have seen that coming.
6: I think it. I think what happened. I think you're right, actually, because they think the whole building got bought out, and the the building aspect, the building part, are condos, mm-hmm. but the basement where we were. Is now an nail salon.
4: We we owned a a loft and it's now a J Crew. So definitely didn't see that coming.
6: (laughs) Yeah, definitely not.
4: Uh, So from there, uh, you moved into theatrical electro rock with your first release, Animal Love. Yes. So how did uh, it evolve into there, and what was the focus of that that record?
6: So I've I've always loved theater, and uh, my I grew up listening to Broadway soundtracks that my mom and my dad favorite Broadway show. Oh man, I I. I don't know. I mean, I I think when I when I first started listening to Broadway, it was like all um, like the classics, like Les Mis and and stuff like that. But um, but yeah, I. I'm dying to see Hamilton, but I know I'm not going to see it for like three or four years because it's just not going to. Tickets will open up. It's
4: easier to probably fly to Chicago and get tickets to Chicago <laughs> than it is to do it. in I'm in not New York. ruling it out. I'm not, I'm not caravan out. out to, yeah. I'll, we'll road trip. We'll in sing Hall. Yeah, we'll sing Into it. the Woods. It'll be fantastic, <laughs> and we'll do it.
6: Yes, yeah. So I always loved theater, and um, I, I got I made some friends in at Michigan who were theater majors. And I'm, whether intentionally or not, that sort of influenced the style of, of this music. And I've always loved big, ornate um, rock bands and, and songwriters like Rufus Wainwright. And I think that's part of why I love San Fermin so much is mm. that grandiose um, element to their music. Sufjan Stevens, too, is a big, ex- uh, was a big inspiration at the time. Um, but yeah, and so I think that, I think that was what I was responding to and putting out.
4: And as you're moving through the different musical stylings how are you beginning to identify your own voice and your own story narrative because it seems that you can as you are a young musician you can kind of dip in and out of styles mm-hmm. but you yourself remain yeah. so how are you developed and what have you hold what did you hold on to through all the different changes in styles
6: i think when i've i've always been very receptive to what has been Around me, and I think when I was in Ann Arbor, I was listening to a lot of folk music. I was befriending a lot of folk musicians, and that naturally inspired me and it, it inspired me to to make songs that were largely written on acoustic guitar. I used strings and lots of organic instruments. and then as I moved into um, more of like um more of like a rock sound, I was I was still experimenting with strings and stuff like that, but I think the electric guitar was a voice that I had not focused on quite as much until then. and I think as that as that era has kind of passed i think the electric guitar has been more of an instrument for me to express myself and to turn to when i have an idea and i tend to think in in melodies for that instrument specifically whereas before i wouldn't i wouldn't have
4: what is it about that instrument in particular that allowed you to open up
6: well i'm actually i'm also in a in a band called guns and hoses <laughs> which is an all all girl Led Zeppelin band? No, I'm just kidding. It's an all-girl Guns N' Roses cover band. And and, a nail salon. And a nail.
7: Salon.
6: We did have many memorable rehearsals in that space, okay. and unfortunately, they'll they'll always live on in that nail salon, whether they know it or not.
7: Mm-hmm.
6: Um, yeah. So I I started playing in that band, like, and it started out as a party joke. A bunch of girlfriends and I had had met through various uh, various shows and stuff like that, and they're all front women of their own bands, and we kind of it. it when it was proposed to me, I was like, "I've never played. I've never played lead electric guitar before, but this sure. This sounds like something that I could enjoy. So why not?" And it took about a year of re- of practicing and rehearsal with the whole band for us to even sound remotely similar to what Guns N' Roses might have sounded like. But it was such a joyous like side project and in a way and it let us really let loose on stage while playing this incredibly complicated music and that's and I didn't sing in that band I only played guitar and so that's when I really discovered the power of what like a gnarly rock show could actually be when you are when you don't give a single fuck (laughs) and you're just you're just doing it for the performance and there's no pressure because it's a cover band except for the hardcore Guns N' Roses fans of course
4: and please state your stage name
6: my stage name is Gash It is. It is a a female version of Slash, which is already sort of an innuendo in its its own way. But the other girls are, so Duff McKagan is Muff McKagan. Izzy Stradlin is Lizzie Stradling. And um, Stephen Adler is Stephanie Adler.
4: Just lends itself.
6: Yeah, it truly did.
4: A queer song? Oh, of course. Uh, What are you going to play for us first?
6: This is a song from the EP that I just put out called Honey. The song is called Armies.
4: You joined Sanferman in 2014. That's right. And you had talked about uh, how joining them was kind of in deference to your own work and not really knowing where you were going. Mm -hmm. So what were some of the lessons of joining a band that was having a really great moment and had broken through on their second cycle?
6: Well, I was terrified at first because there had been two, three amazing singers in my place before. There were the girls from Lucius who sang on the record. And then there was Ray Cassidy who had toured with them before was that. was
4: in the studio for Snacky Tunes several yes. years ago. And
6: it's so bizarre to hear that, that iteration of the band before I joined. It feels like this like capsule of time that I was looking into before I joined the band and wondering what I was getting myself into. Um, uh, what was the question? What was...
4: <laughs> what, what are some of the lessons that oh, you yes, learned? Yes. Um, well,
6: I think I was just in a period where I wasn't quite sure what the next step of my of my uh, career was going to be, and I, I was feeling really lost for lack of a better word. With not only with my music, but on, on a personal level, I was like having a, a really terrible year where I, like I lost people and was sort of sorting through some interpersonal relationships that had fallen apart, and like feeling really depressed and angry all the time. And um, that's kind of where Honey was born out of, just a place of kind of a place of anger but a place of self-discovery as well and I think I was just in a mode where I was saying yes to everything and I was kind of I took like a dance class and I was in guns and hoses and when this opportunity came about the mutual friend that connected us was like I don't know if you'd have time for this but I think it might be an interesting fit and so I met with Ellis sang some of the songs and I really fell in love with the music and I think that's Something that opened me up to the possibility of joining a band where I wasn't creatively invested at the time. Like I wasn't, I didn't write any of the songs. Ellis, even though he is the primary songwriter and arranger, does not sing. And so he brought he brought me on. And Alan is the is the male voice of of San Fermin, and the two of us kind of tell his story in a way. Um, and so I think I in sacri- in not sacrificing, but in sort of letting the pressure that I was putting on myself off, I was able to open up to serving this other project and serving somebody else's vision really helped me open myself up to why I fell in love with music in the first place and really helped me hone performing on a different level and only focus on singing as opposed to the whole project. And coming out of the other side of that, now that this EP is released, when I was arranging and and writing for all of that, it helped me see it in a completely new light.
4: And were you able to find time on the road to write the EP, or where did you find the most amount of time?
6: Uh, yeah, I actually love writing on the road, because <laughs> there's nothing to do in a van but for eight hours but sit, and you can either read or listen to music. Um, one summer I watched the entire series of Game of Thrones, but besides that... Well done. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> um, but besides that, it's I, I, really, I, fi- I feel really inspired to write on the road, because you're in a different city every day. You're... Being, you're being forced to see the world from a new perspective quite literally and that brings about a lot of um, a lot of reflection I think and so it's easy to write stream of consciousness in a, in a notebook or on a phone or something and then make beads in the van and um, bring stuff bring ideas together when you have that time and especially because there's no Wi-Fi you can it, it forces you to to be creative without you know surfing the Facebook or something.
4: Did you share with the other bandmates, or was it just something totally personal?
6: Yeah, I would share I would share with Ellis and Alan and anybody else who was interested in hearing it and it's I love hearing their feedback and in San Fermin, everyone it seems like almost everybody has their own side projects, so mm. Alan is releasing his own I saw stuff it. right now we'll and have it have it back really on. cool to see Yeah, he's such, yeah
4: he's got such a wonderful voice. He really does. Can we hear another song? Sure. What's the name of this one?
6: Um, this one is called "You." It's the last track of the EP, and we actually just released a music video for
4: this song. It's a, it's incredible. Oh, thank you. Where did you find the dancers?
6: Uh, they were just friends of friends. Yeah. Where
4: did you find the bodysuit?
6: Actually, uh, this seems like the right place to say it. I got all, everything that you're seeing in the video. I got at a Halloween store. <laughs> There's nothing. I didn't spend. I didn't spend like any money <laughs> on the outfits and the bodysuit that I'm wearing. I had had for a few years, and I was like, this seems like the right place to, to use it. But the cat suits that the dancers are wearing and the like sunglasses and stuff. It was. It's like all from the Halloween store on Fourth Avenue.
4: <laughs> Perfect.
6: <laughs> because when you're indie, you have to rig things.
4: Uh, please take it away. Sure. When it came out last month, congratulations. Thank you so much. How was the show at Mercury Lounge?
6: It was great. It was really fun.
4: What's the last month brought since the release of the EP?
6: Um, It's been great. Um, I've basically just been doing some promo and stuff to release the EP, um, hoping to play as much as possible. More on that soon.
4: OK. One of the things that's really apparent is you have a strong producer oh, on, yes, on there. I agree. Uh, Elliot Jacobson. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So how does the conversation between you two exist? I know that you maybe sketch out a melody. Where does his influence and suggestions begin to help form the songs?
6: I'm So I've, I've loved working with Elliot throughout this process. It's been so easy and so fun. I think the, what what really was great about it and kind of very appropriate to our time right now as as independent musicians and sort of like the DIY era was that I created all the demos on my own laptop on tour, as we discussed. And then I would basically just send him stems and he would take those stems, sort of rearrange them, replace some sounds, revamp the drum sounds, especially. And then he would send it back to me and it would be sort of like a back and forth, um, almost like it was almost entirely digital. Like we didn't, we only spent one day in the studio, which was to record vocals and some guitars, which we wanted to have outside, like you know, not in the box, but to create that li- like live room sound. Um, but yeah, I I really admired his work from before, and it's been so easy with him. And I think I'm excited because I think we've really stumbled upon like a really unique sonic blueprint that I'm interested in exploring more in the future.
4: Were there any tracks in particular where he took things in a totally different direction than when you initially started crafting the, the music?
6: Yeah, so there's a song in the EP called Porcelain, um, which started out as almost like a bad strokes B-side, and it had the, like very <laughs> grungy, grungy chords and production that was not particularly inventive, and, and he took it and totally... Turned it around into something that I did not expect at all, and he added these trap drums, and the bass turned into this like pulsing electronic thing instead of a live bass, and um, created these drops. and He and I remember this one email that he sent me. He was like, "It's like a drop, but it's like a Beyonce drop. It's not like a like an EDM drop." <laughs> and I think he's he's good at creating these little these moments of uh, that are that are quite special within the songs that I would not have thought of otherwise.
4: And the 90s influence is pretty uh, apparent. What are some of your favorite acts from that time that continue to influence your music writing today?
6: Oh, my gosh. Um, it's actually, it's funny that you say that, because I've been playing guitar as a side man for this band called Bright Light, Bright Light. And he is like the king of, of 90s music. Every time we get into a car, it's like 90s nonstop. And so we were just obsessing on a recent car ride over Aaliyah, Lauren Hill, Um, 3LW, Dream, Tony Braxton, like a lot of 90s R&B.
4: Are you writing this down for your playlist?
6: (laughs) (laughs) I can make it for you. send it over. Uh, yeah. And I think Alanis Morissette was a huge one for me.
4: Oh, I mean, of, of course. Yeah. Uh, so what's up, uh, for the fall and the 2017?
6: So San Fermin is recording their third album right now, our third album right now. And, um... It's kind of fun because everybody's releasing their own solo stuff right now. And I was just telling um, Hector out there that I hope that San Fermin turns into like a like a broken social scene kind of collective where we have our own projects, but we all can come back and, and play together and have that that we share over the years and have everything kind of developing in tandem and
4: like influencing each other and like lifting each other up. A good feedback loop.
6: Yeah, exactly.
4: Well we want to make sure we have time for one more song. Mm-hmm. Uh, but where where can people find you? Find the EP, find out where you're touring.
6: So I'm I'm in all the all the usual places. Instagram is at Charlene K, so is Twitter. Um my my website is KOfficial.com, K A Y E Official. And yeah, I think that's Everything else branches out from there.
4: Okay. Well thanks for being on the show. Yeah. Thanks for joining us as well. Um I know we're gonna make some playlists after this yes. for some knife yes. sharpening. Yeah. Uh Darren, thanks for calling in. Good to hear your voice. Yeah.
5: yeah, thanks for everyone listening. And uh please remember that all of our past episodes are podcasted on iTunes and to subscribe and to if you have a moment write a review for us. We would really appreciate it.
4: Yes, we would. Okay, what is the last song you're gonna play for us?
6: Uh, I might do a cover if that's oh, okay
4: Of course it's okay
6: um, This is something that I've never played live but I've always had In, in, the, in the roster And I've, I've always loved this song um, It's an Aretha Franklin song Called Ain't No Way And I figured why not Perfect. Why not try something out
4: Well thanks for listening We will be back next week with another episode of Snacky Tunes K take us out
6: Yeah, Thank you so much for having me Greg and Darren And so nice to meet you Yael I, can't, w- I can't wait to visit your restaurant
7: About food,
3: we talk about music, with musical dudes,
7: finger
8: on the pulse, snacky tunes. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website, or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio.